Happy Sabbath, everyone. Hope everyone's doing well today. I'm truly privileged to be here this Sabbath day, worshiping with you. I want to thank Pastor Maciel and the pastoral team for the privilege to come and speak with you on this Black History Month Sabbath. I'm just, uh, just sitting there listening to uh, Brother Colin Hill talking about the families that have been sponsored and that are being sponsored. It's just a tremendous testimony for me to the goodwill of this church community. And when I think about that in the context of a better world and the many things that are being done across the globe from this congregation, it's a wonderful testimony to your goodwill towards humanity. I think about what Pastor Maciel mentioned, the, those folks in Ukraine right now who are undergoing, well, just another expression of, of, of human inhumanity and human depredation, just another expression of oppression, really, where the strong tends to dominate those that are weak. And so we are in solidarity with our brothers and sisters who are in this particular plight at this moment, victims of, of aggression. And so we, we do what we can as a church community. That's what Christ has called his church to do, to help where we can, relieve the suffering. And so it is part of a longer story, of course, when it comes to, to, to inhumanity towards each other. It's a part of a longer human story that goes all the way back. Uh, uh, let's go back to Genesis, if we would like. But today, I'm here to just talk about black history. This is Black History Sabbath. And I'm not really here to talk about oppression. I'm here to talk about something else. But I'm here to, uh, whenever, I, whenever it comes to this business of black history, invariably the question comes up, you know, why do you need to talk about black history? Why do you need to celebrate black history? And there are a number of reasons for this, of course. I think any people want to talk about their past, whether it's, it's good or it's bad. You know, the ancient Hebrews celebrated or at least remembered their exodus from Egypt. They remembered their enslavement in Egypt, and they talked about it for still today, for generations, for thousands of years. Even Adventists, we have a history as Adventists, and we know that history so intimately. Those individuals who were essential, you know, to, to our founding, we talk about William Miller and the pioneers and the great disappointment and, you know, Joseph Bates gave us the Sabbath and we talk about the, the role of, of Uriah Smith and, and, and um, the role of uh, James White, Sister White, of course, in prophetic ministry. We celebrate Adventist history. We talk about it because it's important for us. It gives us a sense of identity, tells us where we are. And in the same context, black folks and people of African descent do also need to talk about their history. And unfortunately, at least in the recent past, it is a history that's connected to enslavement and oppression, but it still needs to be talked about. And so it gives us a sense of um, identity, remembering where we have come from. And it is also a story of survival. The reason why we talk about it is because it's a story of survival. The fact that we went through as a, a people in the African diaspora, and even in Africa, a period of, of, of trauma, whether that trauma was the transatlantic slave trade or it was colonization. It was a period of trauma that we went through. And it, it is a commemoration of survival, the fact that we've survived to talk about it today. And we still live with the repercussions, of course, in many ways, but it is a story of survival that we celebrate, we commemorate. But it's also a story that underwent eraser. The reason why we talk about it and celebrate it is because it was a story that was long erased. 
we were told, black folks were told for a very long time, that our history began at enslavement. Our history began when the first ship arrived in Africa and took enslaved individuals to the New World. That's where black history began. And in fact, many scholars and theologians and others taught for a very long time that black folks had no history. Africa was a continent enveloped in the darkness of night with no sense of God, no sense of history, nothing they've contributed to humanity. The legacy of the human race was not carried forward or, or uh, had any significant contribution from the black race and so on. So for a long time that has been taught and the histories of black peoples were denied, erased. And so we need to revive that history and to say that black history did not begin at slavery, as I will share with you today. Black history has antiquity from the very beginning. And if we all came from the family of Adam and Eve, then black folks came from the same family. We were there from the very beginning and also had significant and important contribution to make to the human story. And that's where black history comes in as well, because it is a story that is not just our story. Black history is also your story. We are connected. As someone reminded us not too long ago, the quote from Reverend Desmond Tutu, where he says that, I'm paraphrasing, where he says, we are humanity together. We are bound. Our histories, our, our, our identities are bound together. We can only be humans together. So our histories are intimately connected it is not a story. Black, hist black history is not their story. Indigenous history is not their story. European history is not their story. It is our collective stories and the ways in which we have been intertwined as a people. I like the concept of Ubuntu. The concept of Ubuntu, the philosophy says, I am because you are, right? And, and, and what that does, it shows that we are connected as human beings. We cannot get away from it. And sometimes our stories are unpleasant, but we must talk about them. We must uh, talk about them and find brotherhood and solidarity, humanity, and empathy in the common sharing of our stories. So today, I want to share with you briefly from the Word of God a story of, of African history. The subject is, Ethiopia shall soon stretch forth her hands to God. I invite you to pray with me briefly. Father, thank you for this privilege I have to speak to your people. I consider it a high privilege, and I pray that you will season my words with wisdom from heaven so that we may leave here uh, more enlightened than we came in. We may understand our commonality and understand your purpose for all peoples in the world. Amen. I want to share with you briefly then from the book of Acts, our scripture reading. From the book of Acts this morning, Ethiopia shall soon stretch forth her hands uh, to God. I pick up the story in Acts chapter 26. Appreciate the uh, scripture reading uh, this morning. It says, Then an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Get up and go towards the south. And he says, Go to the road that goes down to, from Jerusalem to Gaza. And this is a wilderness road. And so Philip got up and he there was an Ethiopian eunuch, it says, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, 
in charge of her entire treasury. Let me set the context for this story. Of course, this is the first century when the gospel is now being spread like wildfire. The Holy Spirit has fallen upon the church, and Peter and the apostles are spreading all around and preaching the gospel. Philip, who is in our story here, had just gone up to Samaria and had preached the gospel to the Samaritans, and they had accepted the gospel, and it was great rejoicing among the Samaritans. And it was in that particular context where God said to Philip, now get up, Philip, says the angel, I'm going to send you down to the south. I want you to head south, and there I want you to, to, to Philip, by the way, had no idea why he was going to the south, but he knew that God had an appointment with him. The Ethiopian eunuch who was on the road to the south did not know that he had an appointment with God. He was on his way home, he said, and he had come to Jerusalem to worship. A lot of times, people read this story, and they say, who is this Ethiopian? Oh, he must be a proselyte. He is an African person. Therefore, he is converted to Judaism, and, be, and he is part of the, uh, uh, he's an outsider, as it were. But I want you to look at this story again because the Bible says that he was on his way home from Jerusalem because he had come to Jerusalem for to worship. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. Why did he come to Jerusalem to worship? Obviously, it was his custom to come to Jerusalem to worship. Not only that, but it's the fact that Jews were scattered abroad in every nation under heaven. No exception. In Isaiah 11.11 11, the Bible says that God will call his people from every nation, and he lists them out. He lists them from Elam and Pathros and, and Egypt and Cush, as in Ethiopia. This man, by the way, is from Ethiopia. But when we think of Ethiopia, we often think of Ethiopia today, which is in the Horn of Africa. But Ethiopia, in the ancient context, was not, not too far away, but distinct from the current and modern Ethiopia. This man was from a place called Nubia, or the northern Sudan. He was from the Sudan. And he was in charge of the treasury of the Kandaki. She is the matriarch, the, the monarch, but a matriarch. Connect her back to the queen of Sheba, the queen of the south, who came to see King Solomon. There's an intimate relationship historically between those peoples. And so she comes. He is the treasurer in charge of the Kandaki's affairs. And he is, by the way, when we think of a eunuch, we often think of someone who's a castrate. But it is not necessarily the case. In fact, many castrates were not. Many uh, eunuchs were not castrates. The word itself means a high official. Uh, by the way, this gentleman's title is, he's a dynastis, okay? From, from where we get the word dynasty. He's a high official, a very high-ranking official in the Kandakis bureaucracy. And so he had come to Jerusalem to worship. But I want you to understand that he was also of a Jewish background. Because the Bible tells us that there were Jews scattered everywhere, including Cush, as I will show you in a few moments here. And so this gentleman had been, and probably generations of Jews that had been living in Ethiopia. We know that there were, Ethiopia, there were Jews in Alexandria, in Egypt, in various parts of Egypt. And of course, Egypt and the Sudan shares a border. And there was nothing in this gentleman's DNA or his physical, his physiognomy that precluded him from being Jewish. He was part of, he was not an outsider, but he was an insider. And he had come to worship and was going back home reading the scriptures that he had read, no doubt, from his youth up. An African man had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was heading back home. He was part of the Jewish diaspora. Of course, we know the diaspora Jews 
where at least two-thirds of, of Jews lived outside of Palestine in the early centuries. Okay, so when, when, in the day of Pentecost, when, when the Spirit came onto the church, the Bible says there were Jews from every nation under heaven, and it begins to enumerate these various nations from where the Jews derived. East, West, North, and South. And right there then, before there was ever a convert, before there was ever a non-Jewish convert to Christianity, the gospel is sent. Right after the Samaritans, the gospel is sent to this Ethiopian man. And so the scripture says that he was reading, and he had come to Jerusalem to worship, and he was heading home, seating in his chariot, reading the prophet Isaiah, and the Spirit, God is directing this, this is not something of human making, the Spirit said to Philip, go over to this chariot and join it. So Philip ran up to it, and he heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. God is directing Philip to an encounter this is not a human initiative. This is something that came from above. And so Philip goes to this eunuch and he says, do you understand what you are reading? And then the man says, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invites Philip to come and sit beside him. How, how can he, do you understand what you're reading? You know, a lot of times we don't reach other people effectively because we don't learn how to ask disarming questions. We don't learn how to ask disarming questions. Philip asked this gentleman a disarming question. Do you understand what you are reading? Simple. It is innocuous. It is inviting. It is an invitation for conversation. And there, the response is, come up on my chariot. Come and, and tell me what it means because it seems that you know what it means. Come on my chariot and, and, and tell me what it means. Come and sit with me. Come and sit beside me and hear me. And help me, and after you've heard my story, then you can teach me. And so he invites Philip to come up and sit. The, a lot of times we don't get to know each other because we don't sit with each other. We don't get to know each other because we don't sit. You can't know me until you have sat beside me and listened to me. You cannot know me in any intimate way unless you have sat beside me, understand where I'm coming from, because it's easy for you to stand over there and judge me and judge someone else because you have never sat in my seat. You have never walked in my shoes. You have never understood my path. And so you cannot see what I see until you sit where I sit. You cannot understand me. And the reason is we cannot understand each other. And there's often this, 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 this distance between us because we never take the time to sit beside someone and hear their story, understand where they're coming from, and understand that our, our paths may be different, but our humanity is the same. And so Philip does, does not judge this brother when he invites him to come and sit in his chariot. He doesn't judge him and say, oh, he's of a different color. He's of, a different, he's of, a, he's of a, the Gentiles. He's unclean, unlike Peter. Because Peter, a couple of chapters later, chapter 10 goes, he sees this vision, of course, and he sees the, the sheet coming down uh, full of four-footed animals and beasts and, and, and things that he considered unclean. And, and Peter said, no, 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 I don't, do any, I don't eat anything common or unclean, God, until God showed him that he was not supposed to call anyone, any man common or unclean. And he says, you know, uh, he was thinking of Cornelius, who was a Gentile. 
as not belonging to the community of God. And he says, do you know that we consider, we Jews consider it unlawful to even sit with you, to come to your house, to eat with you. We don't think of you as part of our community. We, and God had to intervene and say, we don't call people common or unclean. This didn't happen in the context of Philip because he was not looking at this man as an outsider. His skin color was not an issue for him. So he said, I don't want to sit with you because you're, you're black. I don't want to sit with you because you're a Gentile. I don't, no, he couldn't say that because he was an insider. He knew he was a brother. He knew he knew Judaism and he was part of that community. And so Philip goes and he sits beside him. Who are you sitting beside on a Sabbath? Who are the people that you circle? Those people with whom we are familiar, people that look like us, people that grew up like us. And we very rarely, infrequently, take a step across the aisle to go sit with somebody else and to try to understand them. And that's one of the reasons why there's so much distance in, in God's, among God's people. Because we don't take the time to sit with an innocuous desire, with a desire to, 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 to learn about somebody. And so Philip says, come. And so the Ethiopian invites him and says, come, sit beside me, brother, and, and, and what do you know that you can share with me? And the passage of scripture that he was reading is this, like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb, a silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation, his life is taken from the earth, and so on and so forth. And the Bible says that beginning right there, Philip begins to expound to him the things about Jesus. Philip begins to teach him, because the, 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 the Ethiopian says, how can I know unless someone teach me? How can we know unless they teach him? How can they know without a preacher how can they know unless someone tells them and the, the the thing is that philip did not himself always know no no the disciples didn't always know why didn't they know they spent all their time quibbling they spent all their time bickering about who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom who is going to be the greatest and who is going to sit on your right hand and who is going to sit on your left hand and they're looking out for their own interests and had no clue but Jesus taught Philip and the disciples beginning with Moses and all the prophets he taught them the things in the scripture concerning himself until they came to an understanding and now that Philip a Jew had come to an understanding it was now their his responsibility and the responsibility of the others to teach others now an African brother incidentally he's on his way he's in the south is in the south. God has a purpose for the south. God has a purpose for the south. And this is part of God's plan. Philip didn't always know the good news of the gospel, concerned as they were with temporal issues and temporal matters. So even after the resurrection, they're asking Jesus, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Will you at this time? We're concerned about the kingdom because they didn't understand that God's purposes involved all peoples and a much bigger vision than they had. And so Jesus had to tell them, listen, don't concern yourself with the times or the seasons. Don't concern yourselves with the times or the seasons which the Father had put in his own power. But I want you to do something. Tarry here until you receive power from on high. And then you will be witnesses for me in Judea, Jerusalem, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. So God says, don't concern yourself with the things that I have put in my own authority. But concern yourself with this one thing, to teach somebody. In the same way that I have taught you, go sit with somebody and teach them about the word. This is Africa that's receiving the word very early in this history 
of Christianity. Here is a high official, an African man, in charge of an African queen's treasury who had come to Jerusalem to worship. Not enslaved. Neither the people from where he derived were enslaved. Neither himself was an enslaved, but rather a high official who could make the journey all the way to Jerusalem in his chariot, no doubt, and a retinue behind him. Because we often have the idea that black folks in antiquity were enslaved and at the bottom of the social rung. Far be it from the truth. So the gospel, moreover, we have this idea that Africa, the dark continent, never received the gospel until the 19th century when missionaries came from the West to evangelize the savages of Africa or when they received the gospel on the plantations. But far be it from the truth. And so God's purposes must be fulfilled because Africa is part of God's plan. Africa is part of God's purposes. The gospel is not and was never intended for any one people. The gospel is never and was never the prerogative of any individual or any one nation or any one race or any one group. The gospel is part of all of our story because Jesus came to save humanity, peace on earth, and goodwill towards all mankind. It doesn't matter what you look like, doesn't matter your gender, doesn't matter your color, doesn't matter your shape, doesn't matter. The gospel is for all of us. The good news of Jesus Christ is for all of us. And it is good news that Christ has come to reconcile. God has reconciled himself with humanity. Wow, God, you've reconciled yourself with humanity. The Bible says, before I move on, the Bible says that Philip spoke to the Ethiopian, and this man was so excited about Jesus. He was so excited about Jesus, learning about Jesus, that, that he knew Judaism, but he didn't know Jesus. He knew Judaism, but he didn't know Christ and what Christ meant. But as soon as he understood, the lights went off, just a boom, boom, wow, I didn't see that before, I didn't see that before, I didn't see that before. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, he sees Christ in context, and he says, what? Here is water. We won't even go further. Here is water, Water, he says. I want to be baptized. I want to follow this Christ. I believe. Philip says to him, Philip says to him, by the way, if you believe with all of your heart, you may. If you believe with all of your heart, you may. And the Ethiopian makes this confession that rings down to the ages to us today. And he says this in his chariot. He says, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. What an affirmation. He says, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. My question to the congregation of, of, of College Heights this morning is, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? If you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, join me in confessing, confessing with the Ethiopian. And say with me, look at your neighbor. Tell your neighbor, you're not ashamed. I believe... Come on, you got to say it louder. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I, say it again, say it again, say it again. Like you you got to say it like you mean it now, okay? Don't muffle it, don't muffle it. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Praise the Lord. What an affirmation coming from the lips of an African man 2,000 years ago. He believed then that Jesus was the Son of God. God's purposes has always included all peoples from the north, the south, the east, and the west. No exceptions. 
No exception. And so the Bible, you may not even understand. The Old Testament tells us that God has a purpose for Ethiopia long, long ago. God's purpose is, is for Africa. It will happen, the Bible says, Isaiah eleven eleven. It will happen in that day that the Lord shall set his hand the second time to recover the remnant of his people which are left in Assyria and Egypt and Pathros and from Cush, which is Ethiopia, in Nubia, and from Elam and from Shinar and from Hamath and from the islands of the sea. God's going to gather his people from everywhere, including Cush, including the south. Ambassadors shall come out of Egypt, says Psalms, and Ethiopia, Cush, shall soon stretch forth her hands to God. God's purposes includes the south. Ah, Isaiah says, land of warring wings beyond the rivers of Cush, sending ambassadors on the Nile in vessels of papyrus. In that day, something's going to happen at that time God says gifts are going to be brought to the Lord of hosts from a people tall and smooth from a people feared near and far a nation mighty and conquering not an enslaved people but a nation mighty and conquering whose land the rivers divide gifts will be brought to Mount Zion to the place of the name of the Lord of hosts from this people God has a purpose for the south always had a purpose from beyond the rivers of Cush he says in Zephaniah my worshipers the daughters of my dispersed ones shall bring mine offering shall bring mine offering from beyond the rivers of Cush God's purpose has always included all people in that day in that day you shall not be ashamed of any of your deeds in which you have transgressed against me for I will take away from you the midst uh, those people who rejoice in your pride, you will no longer be haughty in my holy mountain, but I will leave in your midst a meek and humble people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. They shall trust in the name of the Lord. God's purpose had always, always included Ethiopia, Cush, Nubia. And so throughout Christian history, this gentleman took Christianity back to his Nubian homeland. Christianity began to thrive there, and the centuries, the early centuries, Christianity began to thrive in Ethiopia. Still today, the Ethiopian Orthodox Church has existed from antiquity till today. At no point was Christianity ever foreign to the soil of Africa through its entire history. Long before missionaries came in the 19th century, Ethiopia, Kush, Nubian Christianity thrived. And even while Islam made its way and Islam was on the rise, and we see this constriction of, of Christianity in Nubia, constriction of Christianity in Africa, even then Christianity still survived as it does today. We have 40 million Orthodox, Ethiopian Orthodox Christians who are worshiping Jesus. They may not worship exactly in the way the West does, but they've been around worshiping and praising Jesus for 2,000 years. And even Nubian Christianity, when Columbus made his fateful journey in 1492 to the West, it was at that particular time the final embers of Nubian Christianity, Sudanese Christianity, were, 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 were basically going out with the, the, the rise of Islam. Islam came in and stifled Christianity in, in, the, in the 15th century in Nubia. And then in the 19th century, it was resurrected with missionaries coming in, bringing the gospel again from the West. But the gospel is endemic to Africa, having reached Africa 2,000 years ago and survived in Ethiopian Christianity still today. And there they are, millions of people still worshiping Christ because Africa shall soon stretch forth her hands to God. And just in case you haven't noticed, by the way, 
there has been a seismic shift in the center, the gravity of Christianity. Because in the year 1900, 82% of Christians lived in the north, between Europe and the United States and Canada. 82% lived in the north. But fast forward to 2020, and we have 67% of, the, the, of, Christ, of Christians live in the global south, most in Africa, then Latin America, and of course, Asia is on the rise. Still today, moreover, so you got to see that the, the center of gravity of Christianity is shifting to the south. What will it look like in the next 20, 30, 40 years? By the way, among Christians... Religion is most important in sub-Saharan Africa. Here's a Pew Research uh, survey. Compared to the rest of the world, ardent in their confession, committed to Christ. Uh, and so we see the shift that's taking place because Ethiopia shall soon stretch forth her hands to God. God's purposes includes all people. And there they are today worshiping our Savior, our soon-coming Savior. It is no wonder that in our North American contexts, the churches that are growing largely are immigrant churches. Those are the churches that are on fire, as it were, growing. But I believe God's purpose is for all peoples, for our church, for all peoples. And it shouldn't be that it's only these churches that are growing and thriving. God wants all of his people to be on fire for him. Amen? Yeah, God wants all of us to be on fire for him because Ethiopia shall soon stretch forth her hands to God. Ethiopia stands as a proxy for the rest of the world. God's purpose is for all of us, for the indigenous, for the north, for the south, for the Indians. Name it. God's purpose is for all of us, and he wants us in his kingdom. Do you want to be a part of that kingdom? Praise the Lord. It is a kingdom, by the way, that is diverse in its composition. Don't imagine that heaven is only going to have one color, one race. Heaven is for all of us. Because we're all made in the image of God. Thank you for listening today. God bless you. God bless you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have called us out of every nation, tribe, kindred, tongue, and people to be a people, a special people for you. No exceptions. I look forward to being around the throne, O oh God, with all of the diversity that you have created, celebrating with you for all eternity. Thank you for Jesus that has made this possible for all of us to be part of your kingdom, redeemed as first fruits from the earth. Oh God, thank you for this moment. Thank you for this church family. Thank you for using them in the mighty ways that you have been doing to bless the world. Continue to use them until you come, is my prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.